My name is Linda Keller, and I will be reading our scripture this morning. It's Matthew 7, 24 to 29, and you can find this in your pew Bible on page 812. We should be very familiar with this passage by now. We've been going over it for several weeks, and today we're going to explore it more deeply with Chris. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew and beat against that house, and it fell, and great was the fall of it. And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching, for he was teaching them as one who had authority, and not as their scribes. Thanks, Linda. Thanks, Mike. Hey, let me make a couple uh, quick Advent announcements, and then we'll pray and jump back into this text. A couple of ways for you to be involved. One of them is for kids to go to their class. So kids, you're dismissed to your class. Uh, up to third grade, you guys are welcome to head to your class. Hey, and kids who may be visiting, if you didn't know, we have actually an activity packet on the back row. Uh, there's some activities for you, some stories there. I'll probably reference that in a little bit, so if I bother some movement, if you want to grab one of those, you're welcome to, but um, there are some activity packs in the back row. All right. Hey, okay, a couple quick couple, couple announcements. Let me go in chronological order. Tomorrow night is what we call Hang of the Greens. It is the most amazing party you've ever been to. It happens in this building where we hang out together and hang up Christmas decorations in this place. So there's pizza before. I believe it starts at 6 o'clock. We come here for pizza, and then we will uh, engage together, get to know each other, and just have different stations where we set up and really decorate and celebrate for Christmas. So this was actually my first event here at our church. It was a great opportunity for me to meet some people, to hear some stories, to kind of be on a, a working crew to kind of engage with some folks. So I would love to invite you to that as a way to be involved in our body. You don't have to be here for very long. You don't have to be a member. Um, it's a pretty casual night, but a great way for you to meet some folks and to be involved. So that is tomorrow evening, actually. Starting at 6, we'll go pizza, and then we'll decorate. And we're trying to figure out how many pizzas to buy, and so we would love for you to RSVP, either online, or there is a sign-up sheet in the back hallway. There's a little desk that sits between the two doors. Uh, on that sheet, you can just put your name, and so we have to make sure we have enough pizza coming into that. So we'd love for you guys to come. After the service, actually, we'll take a few minutes, um, and we will go grab those boxes of decorations out of storage and put them in their spot. So uh, Joyce Deering, I'm sure, will de- uh, kind of direct us a little bit, and the Mohearts, and we have some folks who can kind of help us get set up. So if you want to stick around after, I'll say that at the benediction as well, but we'll go and grab stuff out of storage today so it's ready to go for that rocking party tomorrow. All right, so that is tomorrow. And then next Saturday, we get a chance to serve our city by setting up for this service called The Longest Night. So we partner with several local churches uh, on what is kind of the longest physical night of the year 
to honor and grieve with and come close to families of murder victims in our community. So it's something we've done for a number of years. Sometimes we host it. Sometimes other churches host it. This year we get the uh, sober joy of putting up crosses uh, on the lawn outside of Warnell Road Baptist Church. And we'll put up one cross representing every victim this last year. And it's been a brutal year. And so I want to invite you to uh, kind of prepare for that service that's coming. There's ways for us just to be present with people, us to serve at that. But to get ready for that, we're going to put up crosses next Saturday. Uh, we don't need a huge crew, maybe 10 or 15 folks will, will get us going. Jim Mohart kind of leads that team. You can email the office, or I think from the newsletter, you can RSVP for that. Um, but we'll take some time this Saturday from 9 to 2. Uh, it'll be, again, a chance to like hang out with each other, but in a way that has kind of this somber feel. We realize what's happening in our community um, needs Jesus. There's places where there's lots of hurt and lots of pain, lots of injustice, lots of things that uh, we need Jesus to come back to make all things new for. And so it would be a physical way for you to engage in the longing of this season. So, so that's this Saturday we're setting up for that. The actual uh, night is a few weeks from now. We'll get you more information about how you can participate with that as well. So it's been meaningful for us to partner with some African-American churches and some other churches in the city uh, to just stop, slow down, tell people they're not forgotten, uh, that we care, that Jesus cares, and to speak a word of hope into what is a really dark, dark season and situation. So, so we'd love for you to sign up for that. So there's a sign-up sheet as well in the back hallway for that. Those two hanging in the greens and then the longest night you can find back there. You can also from our newsletter or you can email the office and we'll, we'll get you set up. So I want you to come and engage with that. Okay. Hey, that's a pretty heavy thing. Let me just kind of pray now uh, for that, for that night, for those families, for um, actually the awareness for us that that is happening all around the globe all the time. Like we live in a really um, complicated world where there are amazing, beautiful blessings and tons of things to celebrate. And there are heart-wrenching tragedies uh, that happen at the same time. And the heart of God, those aren't in conflict. He's not scrambling to hold them together somehow in his power and in his love and his mercy and his justice, he can hold all that together, even though our hearts often have a hard time understanding like, how do we engage uh, things that make us happy and smile and things that just rip our hearts out. So, so let me just pray over us, capacity, and then for God to speak to us this morning, and even as I pray for those families uh, proactively that we'll celebrate with in a couple of weeks. So, so about them one more time, we'll pray. Father, we just come now and we... Um, acknowledge, like we've said, come decorate and have a party, and then we've said, come and mourn and weep. It actually reminds me of the way the Sermon on the Mount begins, where you have an invitation to all those who are brokenhearted, all those who are weeping, all those who are poor in spirit, to come into your kingdom. And so God, would you give us a heart that matches your heart for our community, for uh, the tragedy that's around us? Would you open our eyes and give us more capacity to care and to connect the hope that we talk about, even the, the hope of our name as a church, to connect that hope to these very real and raw and tragic and sad situations. And we have kind of these high-level uh, things like, like murder victims that just are hard for us even to wrap our mind around why. And then there's lots of other loss that we've experienced, and so we just need your help to connect the hope of Jesus to, to lots of things, things in our own lives, things in the lives of those that we love, things. In, in our community. So, so we ask God that you would help us. And would you orient even this sermon and a series around the authority of the coming King for Advent? 
Would you like make that a healing balm? Would you make it clarify for us that this is not a game, that we, we live in a world of life and death? And your offer is actually an offer of life and death. It's not just ideas or traditions or activities. It's actually the very hope for life. So would you engage us this morning with um, hearts to hear, um, eyes to see, a willingness to actually respond? And, and I would say, um, how would you show up in ways that are profound and change people even this morning? So would you save people from their sin? Would you heal them? Would you comfort them? Would you correct them? Would you grant repentance? Um, and would you come close in ways that we can sense and we can feel? So, so we ask for your spirit to move in power as we engage uh, the word. And we ask that for our whole community. There's people gathering all over our city. So God, all over our city, would you bring your spirit in ways that bring revival and healing and help and comfort and reorient us around who you are. God, open our eyes to the kingdom of God and help us to respond to you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Whew. calendar and come and, and join us. Uh, help us say to people that Jesus really cares about what is hard, which is what Advent is about. That is actually the longing. And so we, we live in this strange place where there's decorations and twinkling lights. And let me just say out loud, like, I love all of that. So I tend to run like at a pretty low, like volume and pretty mellow but like, I love Christmas. I love the foods. I love even the reindeer games. I love the lights. I love the gifts. I love all of it. We'll do puzzles. We'll have things on the stove. Like we'll drink hot beverages. We'll do lots of things as a family. So I love that part. And I think it's appropriate for us to celebrate. But Advent has this connection to reality for us to remind us that though Christ has come, we, we need him to come again. Because if this was all that there was, like it is a pretty hopeless situation and you, you're left from moving from event to event to event to kind of muster up energy and excitement and coping and comfort from stuff and experiences and people, which your history shows will never actually satisfy. You can't have enough stuff, right? Your parents, you know that moment as soon as all the gifts are open like there's this emotional crash it's like this what just happened we had all this elation and excitement and then there's this longing for more almost immediately it doesn't matter how many things are under the tree there's always a longing for more and our hearts are just wired for eternity and so we're always asking for more and we have this habit this reflex this sinful response to the world around us to ask stuff and people and experiences to fill that gap in our hearts. And Advent just says out loud over and over again, nothing besides Jesus can fill that gap. And he's come in a very real way. His first coming was real and it changes you. And it is a deposit on something that is still to come where God will ultimately make all things new. And so we live in this tension and these questions of like, if he's the king, then why? And Advent is about answering and giving capacity for and giving permission to ask those questions of why. And what's fascinating to me is we come to the end of the Sermon on the Mount and stay in the book of Matthew in this season. We get a chance to ask, like, who is the one who we're longing for to come again? 
Who, who is this King Jesus? And actually, Matthew has been laboring throughout the gospel to tell us who this one is. It starts in chapter 1 by giving us Jesus' credentials, that he comes from this family line. He's the one that has actually the, the historic family lineage authority to come and be the Messiah. And Matthew, more than any other gospel, points back to all the prophecies of the Old Testament and says, look there, see, he's fulfilling. Look there, see, he's fulfilling. This is the one that was promised to actually come. And what he's doing in the gospel, which is a historical narrative, but he has a, a theological purpose. It's why some of the gospels read differently, why they have some things in different order, why there's some slight variations between Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. It's not that there's four different stories, but, but each author is telling the story in a way to get our attention. It's historical, but it's also theological. It's telling us about who God is. And so in this Advent book, reminding us that Christ came, why he came, what he came to do, and that he's coming again is the way the book actually closes in chapter 28. What we see is permission to ask and explore, who is this King Jesus? So he's got these credentials, he fulfills these prophecies, and then Matthew will labor to highlight some things for us that puts Jesus in this space where we've been longing for a deliverer, for someone to come and rescue, and maybe we're tempted to look back to David or look back to Abraham or look back to Moses. And what Matthew wants to show is that Jesus is a truer and better Moses. He's a truer and better David. He's a truer and better Abraham. He is the one that everything was pointing to. And so even in his birth, as you have King Herod going to assassinate all the children, you're reminded of the way Moses was born. And as we come into kind of the early parts of the story, we see Jesus' baptism is this symbolic representation of God bringing his people even through the Red Sea. And it goes into these 40 days of temptation for Jesus, which matches the 40 years of wandering for the Israelites. And we see at the end of that time, Jesus actually resists the evil one where we didn't. He's tempted the same way Adam and Eve were to take matters into their own hands. And he resists the evil one in our place so that we can actually have hope. And then he goes into this teaching, the same way Moses went up on the mountain and got the law from God and came back and delivered to the people. Jesus goes on this mountain and begins to teach authoritatively about who he is, what he's like, what he came to do, and what it means to be in the kingdom. And Matthew's been very careful to tell the story historically accurate, right? It's reliable, historical account of the life of Christ, but to say it in such a way that catches our attention and wakes our hearts up to what we actually need. He's, he's telling us these stories so we might find ourselves in the story asking, am I in that spot where, where my poorness in spirit actually makes me able to come to Jesus? Am I in a place where I'm looking to him as the foundation of my life? Am I, am I in the spot where my hypocrisy is actually being healed because Christ has come to meet me and there's now an alignment between what I say I love and what I actually love because God is changing my heart? Or is there a dissonance there like there were in the Old, uh, the Old Testament, there were in the first century, there were in the people that Jesus is talking to? Where he keeps over and over and over again saying, hey, there's a, a misconnection between what you say you believe and what you actually do. He's saying that to invite us to consider our own lives. So Advent is a massive invitation. It's an invitation for you to consider King Jesus. And as we come to the end of this Sermon on the Mount, I want to just draw your attention to the way it closes. Matthew's voice kind of comes back in as the narrator in verse 28 of chapter 7. I'm on page 812 if you've closed your pew Bible. It's Matthew chapter 7. This is the very end of the Sermon on the Mount. It says this, And when Jesus finished these sayings, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one who had authority, not as their 
scribes. As I wrestled with what was going on in the end of this Sermon on the Mount, in the next couple of chapters, what we're going to see is this word authority keeps popping up. He is taught like one with authority. And now in chapters 8 and 9 of Matthew, Matthew labors to show us that Jesus actually has the authority to back up the claims that he makes. He has authority over the physical. You'll see him heal. You'll see him calm storms. You'll see him command nature. Here's the one who came, who taught us these things. He claims to actually speak for God. He claims to have a way for us to be healed, a way for us to know God through him. And can he back that up? Man, he does back it up by having authority over the physical. And then he has authority over the spiritual. We'll see him cast out demons and actually promise to forgive sin. So we see authority over the physical, authority over the spiritual. And then he will call his disciples to himself and say, hey, I have authority even over your very life because I'm the king. And as the king, there are just two options, allegiance to the king or rebellion to the king, which is how he's been closing down this sermon. He's been teaching us about the kingdom of God. And lest we miss kind of the invitation and the warning, he says there are just two choices. And he personifies it with two gates and two roads. There's a threshold we have to cross in faith to come to Jesus. And it's not the broad road that the world would promise us of ease and where everything is kind of given to us the way that we want on our own terms. It's actually a narrow road where we have to empty ourselves and actually come to him through our own spiritual death to receive his life. And he says it's like these two trees and they bear different kinds of fruit. And there's two kinds of confession, one that rests on what it has done and what it believes and one that rests in a relationship that we looked at last week. And now Jesus closes with this illustration of these two foundations, these two houses. And you are meant to read this last paragraph sitting on the edge of your seat asking, what am I building my life upon? What is actually the foundation? What will save me from the storms? Where does this thing end? What is actually the result of hearing these words? What am I trusting in? So so there's a way that he pulls us into this and asks, where are you with King Jesus? Because here's the deal. Advent in so many ways is a declaration of war. He's a king coming to our world declaring there is no other king but King Jesus. Allegiance to anybody else, anything else, any other movement, any other ideology, any other passion will leave you hopeless and bankrupt. There is only one true king. So we have candles and we have wreaths and we have foods and we have gifts and we have a declaration of war. Don't miss over these next couple of weeks what Jesus is offering you, what he's warning you of, what he's inviting you to. He's inviting you to not add Jesus to a list of things you already love and are doing that he's going to improve. He's offering you life. He's offering you a relationship with God himself. He's offering you allegiance to the one true king, but you have to come to him the way he demands that you come. So he ends the sermon, and they're just stunned. They say, man, you're teaching like nobody else we've ever heard teach there's something about what you've said and what you've promised and how you've engaged because he said he was the son of God he said he's the one who has the power to interpret the law for us he said he's the one who's going to actually fulfill the law to us he says he's the one that if you follow him people are going to persecute you as you actually engage allegiance with him he is the one who divides the world 
Advent is a declaration of war. And I don't mean to like just hype that up. I want to invite you to consider like where are you with King Jesus? Because the way this thing closes down with this question of authority, you're meant to ask me, where am I? Am I in allegiance to King Jesus or am I on the side of rebellion? And again, so we don't miss it, he's done these four illustrations, basically saying the same thing. There are just two ways. There are just two kingdoms. It's the kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord and King. That's it. And you have a chance, an opportunity to respond to the invitation from King Jesus. And so so I want to walk through this last illustration. Hey, kids, in your packet on one of the pages, there's a house and a way for you to color that. If you color that and bring that to, um, who should we, Matthew, would you be our fruit snack man? All right, so Matthew, with hand that will be our fruit snack man. He will take your drawing and he will give you some fruit snacks. It's an amazing exchange that we have here. So you can draw on that if you like, but if you wanted to draw your own picture of two different kinds of houses, because Jesus is going to say there's two kinds of houses built on two different foundations. When a storm comes, one of them stands strong and the other one actually collapses. So maybe in your mind you could imagine two different houses and maybe draw what it would look like for one of those to be strong and secure and one of those to actually collapse. You could flip that page over and draw there, but Matthew will meet you with fruit snacks in the back. It's a way for you to actually engage with us this morning. And as you're doing that, moms and dads, we'll be talking about what it means for you to actually build your life on Jesus. We want to take four observations from this illustration, this invitation, right? There's four things I think we can just kind of note. There's probably a thousand things, but we're just going to focus on four. And here they are. Hey, everybody is building a house. Everybody's making sense of their life. Everybody is building a house. Everybody builds on some kind of foundation. You don't have an autonomy all on your own. You're building on some kind of foundation. Storms will always come. Storms come to everybody. It's not just a Christian, non-Christian thing. Storms come to everybody. And what you've built your life on determines your destiny. Everyone is building a house. What foundation really matters? You have to build on something. You have to build on something. You build on something because storms are coming. They come to everybody. And what you've built your life on determines your destiny. That's how we're going to walk through this text. So look with me in verse 24 of chapter 7 of Matthew. He says this, everyone, ev- everyone, he'll say it again in verse 26, e- everyone. This is an invitation. This is a call. This is a challenge. This is a confrontation. This is a winsome beckoning to everyone. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and it beat against that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And then everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them, those are your only two choices. Hear these words and follow them. Hear these words and reject them. Who does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell. And great was the fall of it. First thing to, to notice, everyone is building their life. Everyone is building their house. Everyone has a place where they're saying, this is what will make me okay. It's a, it's a category of worldview. Everyone is answering the question, what is it that will lead to flourishing, that will lead to me being whole, that will actually satisfy the longings of my soul? And what Jesus has been doing for three chapters in Matthew is telling you about the kingdom of God. 
He, he's been telling you, this is the way I want you to see reality. This is what actually is real and will rescue and save you. This is your only hope. Jesus has been giving us a worldview centered around the kingdom of God. Because worldviews answer the question of what's wrong with the world? How, how can we make it right? Why are we even here? What's the purpose of this? Where's all of this heading? Those are the questions that worldviews seek to answer. And in this sermon, Jesus has been answering those questions. He's been answering those questions in really profound ways, in ways that people are leaning in, they're being changed, they're being confronted, they're being challenged, they're being comforted as well. Because what he's been saying is that opposite of what the world normally tells you, you're invited to build your life not on your own credit, not on your own merit, but on what Christ has done for you, on what the king himself has actually accomplished. You couldn't actually do enough righteousness to make yourself right with God. You would need a righteousness that surpassed that of the best of the best. You simply can't do it. You need a better righteousness, that what's wrong with the world is the sin and brokenness of our heart. And Jesus came into our world to actually heal and address that. But everybody, everybody, everybody is building their house on something and is trying to rescue or make sense of or figure out like their story, their future, their past, their present. And it is a question of worldview. And you don't get a chance to just invent your own worldview. You hear it from somewhere. You make sense of it from somewhere. Right? He says, everyone who hears these words of mine is like a wise man. But if you hear these words of mine and reject them, you're like a foolish man. Everybody hears and you take in ideas about the world, ideas about you. You don't have original thoughts about yourself and about the world, about what's wrong, about where we're all heading. You have this patchwork and this conglomeration of lots of different versions of humanity and the future and the world and brokenness that you're trying in some sort of collage to make sense of. Now, I don't mean like there's no new ideas when it comes to technology or inventions or science. What I mean is when it comes to answering these questions of the soul, you are receiving information and you're assimilating it. And Jesus says that when you hear his words, the difference is not just hearing them, but actually doing something with them, to, to put them into practice. Throughout this whole section, actually, he's been driving to reality to say it's not just hearing stuff, it's putting them into practice. It has something tangible to it. There is a, a way of engaging the kingdom that's not just ideas. It has a lot of doing. It actually is real, and it really changes you, Jesus has been saying. He's been saying when you trust him, it actually really changes you. So everybody is building their house, and no one is building it in a vacuum. You're building it based on something that you've heard. And what makes a difference here is, is what you do with what you hear. So I just thought like an illustration, like maybe you could think about the ways you're engaging the Christmas season as maybe a filter or a window into where you find yourself with Jesus. It's a little bit risky, but let me try here. When you think about Christmas, there's a couple of options, right? One is you just stay at like the tradition level. It's the movies, it's the gifts, it's the food, it's the parties. And you engage in the traditions and you give gifts, right, in the terms of Michael Scott, like showing people how much they matter to you based on the price of the gift that you give, right? You're engaging in this season at that kind of holiday tradition level. That's an option with Jesus, it's not a good option. It won't actually rescue you, but you can engage him as a historical figure. Engage him as somebody who came. Engage him as somebody's birth that we celebrate. I'm actually was fascinated. Our world has no problem doing this. So last year, 
uh, we were at the lighting of the Christmas tree in Crown Center. And at the end of that thing, we sang Silent Night. And I remember like, looking at my wife like, are we doing this? Like right here, right here in Crown Center, we're, we're declaring King Jesus has come into the world to come and rescue and to heal. And our world just goes, yeah, that's kind of part of the tradition. There's even a He-Man Christmas special that talks about the birth of Jesus. And you're like, what in the world? So we have these cultural things that have no problem with like the history and the sentimentality of Jesus. That's one option. One of them, though, is to actually engage it with worship. To see it not just as a story, not just as things that happened in the past, not just things that our traditions are rooted in, but something that actually fulfills the longings of my heart. So think about how you're engaging the Christmas season. And I don't mean it as a one-to-one parallel, but maybe it has just as a small window into how you can hear the words of Jesus and you can appreciate them rather than actually take them into your heart and begin to apply them. It's like a, it's like a warning. Because Jesus is saying you've got these two options and you're meant to ask, which option am I taking? Everyone builds their house Everyone builds their life. Everyone's making sense of the world. And the second thing he says in this section is that everyone's building it on something. Your house isn't just free-floating. You find some sort of place to ground it. There's some sort of foundation. And we could probably talk about the idea that there's like real foundations and ideal foundations. Probably things that you say you believe and long for and stuff that your life shows you actually believe and long for. So, So we're caught sometimes between the ideal and the real, which is why Jesus says it's not enough just to hear these words. You have to actually put them into practice and to do them. That's the one who builds his house on the rock. So, so Jesus is the rock, no doubt, but what makes it rock or sand is actually obedience or disobedience. Right? Did you catch that? They, they hear these words, and if you re- disregard them, it's sand, and if you take them in and embody them and begin to follow them, then it is rock. And he's saying everybody builds their house on some sort of foundation. Remember, he's been dealing with this issue of hypocrisy a misalignment between what we say and what we actually believe, what we do with our lives and what we claim is true of our lives. That's what he's been talking about the entire sermon. So when we come to this spot, we would expect that he would challenge us one more time on that space. Hey, what are you actually building your life on? You grew up in these traditions. You have this language. You have these stories. You can tell these events of this season. But are you actually resting your life in a place that actually puts obedience in space for you to put your hope and life on Jesus. Right? This is what faith is about. I love this image because it's about like resting and bearing the weight of your life. There's a substance and a reality to it. Right? Sometimes we're just in our heads, but Jesus is giving us a, a tangible illustration to say faith is like sitting, resting, putting all of your weight on something. It is a foundation that you rest your entire life on, right? Not just something you patch together. It's something that you sit on, that you ask to bear the weight of your whole life. And what you put your weight on, what you're trusting in, actually drives your behavior and your obedience. And he says it's possible to hear this entire sermon, to listen to everything that we've been talking about for months, and not put them into practice. Which raises the question for us, like, where are we with obedience to Jesus' commands? Where are we with his teaching about the kingdom? Where, where are we with actually putting into practice the things that he has taught us? Can, can I ask you, like, what is the reason you give yourself or those around you for why you don't obey the commands of Jesus? He talks about forgiveness and generosity. He talks about 
your whole life being oriented around him. What is it that you say? What, what excuse do you give? How do you make sense of the places where you don't actually obey? Because he says if you don't obey, it's like building your life on sand that actually can't hold you. And, and your life shows that, right? When you put your hope in something other than Jesus, it actually crumbles. It can't bear the weight. So your job can't, your body can't, your strength can't, your beauty can't, your money can't. Your gender identity can't. Your family background can't. Your future can't. Nothing can actually hold you. And so, so why is it that we continue to struggle to actually put into practice the things that he said? And I just thought about this like as a real builder because he's doing a real illustration. Right? There's two houses. And basically what he's saying is you kind of can't tell the difference in the way these houses are constructed. It's what they're sitting on. So who on earth would build on sand? Like why would you do that? Why would you not trust King Jesus? Why would you not align your heart with the kingdom of God? Why would a builder build a house on a foundation that he knows won't hold? So, so I just thought for a minute, maybe actually they don't know another way. This is what they've always seen. This is what's always happened. They only know building houses on sand. Right? They've never heard something different. Right? We might use the word ignorance here. I just didn't know anything different. I didn't know there was another option. I didn't know there was a king who came into the world who offered to rescue me by dying in my place. I couldn't build my life on that because I didn't know. Maybe ignorance is there. Maybe they think that the warnings and the rules and the guidelines that they don't actually apply, that they're going to somehow beat the system. They, they, they hear all these other warnings and they apply to those people, but not to themselves. Right? We could maybe put the word pride on this. Why is it that you hear the words of Jesus and don't obey? Sometimes it's ignorance. Sometimes, though, it's pride. And sometimes we, we think, man, the storms won't come. It's, it's not going to happen, right? So there's a, a naiveness sometimes to the way that we live our life, thinking that not only are we going to beat the system, but they, they simply won't come. It's not going to happen. We can get around these things. And there's a naivety sometimes that leads to our lack of obedience. Maybe you think like you don't actually have time to build it right. Maybe we're just throwing up houses. We, we uh, grew up, my wife and I, in Oklahoma, kind of right along some paths of some tornadoes. And there would be times when tornadoes would come through like a mile wide and wipe out whole sections of our town. Well, builders would throw up houses as fast as they could in certain areas. And almost every single time, those houses had really shaky foundations. So, so we have friends who bought houses that tiled beautiful floors in these new homes and within months, massive, massive cracks, right? They're just anxious, throwing it together, doing as fast as you can, thinking, I don't have time. I have to rush. I'm moving forward, trying to rescue and save myself. There's an anxiety sometimes that might keep us from obeying. And then maybe simply we don't want to. Like we just, we just don't want to. Maybe there's actually like a laziness. Why would you, when looking at your life, what would you say? What reason would you give for why you, when you hear the words of Jesus, don't actually put them into place? And maybe the sixth one is you don't believe he's actually Lord. Which what Matthew is doing in his gospel is making a case for us so that we can change our worldview and realize this is the only house that matters. This is the only way to build our life, to actually rest it on King Jesus. And maybe, maybe there's like a combination of this, right? If we have ignorance and pride and naivety and anxiousness and laziness, maybe there's this mixture of all those sometimes. So, so last year, as the quarantine started, we wanted to make some outdoor space in our backyard, so we added onto our patio with some little pavers. 
kind of a research guy, so I'm looking at all the stuff, all the blogs, looking at Home Depot, grabbing all the flyers, and everyone says you should do you know, several inches of rock, like four to six inches of rock. And then you should do like several inches of sand, and then you should set the pavers on top of that. I just do some math and, and look at my back and go, there's no way. I'm not hauling that much rock. I'm not hauling that much sand. And I came across this product that promised it was an adequate coating for me. It's this topping sand and just like two inches thick is all that I needed. And a couple of dozen bags would be enough for me. So if I put this down, I didn't have to do all the rock and all the sand. I could build my patio on this. And it was like, oh, that's much, much better. It's much, much easier. And you know what? I think that's the right way. All these blogs give me a different instruction. Everything else, a unified voice about rocks and sand and all of that. But I read this one product and go, oh, that's the one I'm going to go for. It happens to be cheaper happens to be easier. And I'm sure with my skills, the way I install this patio, it's going to last for forever because I know better than all these blogs. I didn't exactly say all that out loud, but I showed I believe that by putting this topping sand down. If you came now to my back patio when we had a socially distanced engagement back there, there's a little fire pit, you would see massive cracks in my patio. Within, within a year, there are actually like these huge splits where this little foundation that everyone said wasn't going to be adequate, but I knew better. Actually, I put my patio on top of that, and there are massive cracks, multiple directions, not even just like one crack, one direction, multiple directions. I totally messed up the entire thing. I have to dig all of it out someday or have Lucas do it. I don't know. I have to pull it out at some point and redo the whole thing and actually have to do it right. So I thought about this like, all right, man, I, I knew everybody. I'd done all the research, but there was like an element of pride Like, I can figure this out. I can do this better. Everyone else needs to do lots of rock and lots of sand, but I'll somehow get around that. And maybe there was a ton of laziness. Not maybe. There was a ton of laziness in my patio installation. Okay, with a patio, you go, ha-ha, with my life? Man, what is it that you're saying to yourself about why you don't obey Jesus when he calls you? Why, Why you see his commands and you don't follow them? What is the excuse that you're making. Everyone builds a house. Everyone has to put it on some kind of foundation. It's either Jesus or it's something else. Which brings us to the third thing. The third thing this section tells us is that storms are going to come. They come to everybody. Regardless of what your foundation is built on, there are storms and floods and rain that come, right? It happens to both of these houses in verse 25 and in verse 27. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. This is describing your life. This is the suffering that you experience. This is the tragedy that you face. This is the moments where things don't line up and match up the way that you hope. They're going to come, and they come to everyone. We have a way of thinking that they won't come to us, or when they do come, we're actually shocked by them, as if it's evidence that God somehow doesn't love us or isn't protecting us. But Jesus actually promises the storms. He's promising us not freedom from storms and rain and floods, but a stable place for our life to sit when they come. They're going to come, Christian, non-Christian alike. That is what history shows us. The Bible tells us that. The Psalms are full of that declaration. Even Jesus' specific promises to disciples is, if you follow me, there are going to be massive storms. It's not a freedom from all the pain. What it is is a stable place to actually hold you when that pain actually comes. Storms are going to come. 
And you should just ask, is what I'm building my life on strong enough to hold me when those storms come? If it's my own approval, if it's comfort, if it's power, if it's in my body, if it's in my money, if it's in my relationships, if it's in healing my past, if it's in pursuing something in the future, will that thing actually hold me? And the evidence of history and your own ache in your heart is that it won't hold. Nothing else has the power to actually hold. So Jesus just says there's only these two foundations. The storm comes to both of these kinds of houses, and it's the one who actually hears the kingdom of God teaching puts them into practice, finds rest and hope in Jesus, right? Because this illustration of a foundation is one of, like, trust. Remember the first command that he's just right above this where he's saying, put these commands into practice? The thing he just said was that you have to know me. The the verse just right before this, what he says you have to put into practice, to hear these words of mine and put them into practice, it is to know me, not to rest on what you've learned in your doctrine or what you do with your deeds but in your relationship, right? It's trusting in him. It's an illustration of resting, stabilizing, bearing the weight of your life. And if you just stop and think about it, no human has the weight, has the heft, has the gravity, has the stability to hold you. No no job does, no accomplishment does, no amount of money does. Nothing could actually satisfy those things that are inside your heart and hold you when everything comes crashing in. Jesus says, man, I I am the one who could actually hold you. That when the storms of life come and they beat against the house of your life, if you're rested in me, then I will hold you. And there may be damage, there may be pain, there may be hurt. It's not fun at all, but to have a stable rock to sit on, Jesus is saying, is what it means to relate to me as the king. So, so every storm comes, and the fourth observation is that what you've built your life on determines your destiny. It's not just about this life. It's not just about your own comfort now. It actually is about your future as well. In every one of these illustrations, Jesus has warned about judgment. He's talking about these two roads, and one of them leads to destruction in verse 13. He's talked about these two kinds of trees, and one that doesn't bear good fruit is, is thrown into the fire, he says in verse 19. In verse 23, he says, depart from me, I never knew you. It's, it's language of being cast out into judgment. And then he says in verse 27 in this section that this house comes and it actually falls apart. It, it blows up. It actually has a fall and a great fall, it says. What Jesus is offering us is not just hope for this life, but hope for the next. What you do in this life, what you build your life upon affects not just this life, but the life to come And only Jesus can carry the weight of your life because only Jesus carried the weight of your sin to actually heal your life. Only Jesus can carry the weight of your life because only Jesus went to the cross to bear the weight of your sin to actually heal what was wrong and broken about your life. Why why trust him? Why look to him as the foundation? Why, Why hear his teaching about kind of formulating this worldview of this life that you want to live? Why, why rest your whole life on him? Not just because storms are going to come, but when they come, you need a place that actually has stability to hold you. And only Jesus can save you in this life and in the next. Not without trouble, not without pain. He promises that. But he has the authority to actually engage with what is wrong and broken 
about your life and the world, and he came to fix it and make it whole. And only he can do that. You're meant to end the Sermon on the Mount with this question in your guts of what are you going to do with Jesus? Will you put all of your hope in him? Will you rest everything upon him? And that is his invitation. Remember, he says, enter into this gate. This warning is meant to be an invitation. It's not to push you away. It's to actually welcome you in and to clarify what you most desperately need. So Jesus speaks these words. And people stop and go, man, this guy is different. He speaks with a kind of authority that nobody else has, right? And there's authority of who he claimed to be. There's an authority of, of what he came to teach. And there's an authority in what he came to do as he died in your place for the weight of your sin and rose again from the grave. That's the one that you actually want to put all your hope and weight on, the one who bore the weight of sin and beat it in his own resurrection and promises you this life eternal if you'll trust him. That's the way the sermon ends. That's the invitation of Advent. It's about trusting this one who will come and actually rescue and redeem. So, so we'll stop here and we'll prepare our hearts to take communion. It's the illustration of how Jesus actually made it possible for us to put our life on his, to rest everything upon him in ways that would actually heal. And he didn't tell you to do it and try harder and get better. He said, would you follow me? But obey these teachings, and these teachings are about trusting me, about realizing you're poor in spirit. Those are the ones who come into the kingdom of God, he says, at the very beginning of this sermon. So communion reminds us that in our poorness of spirit, in our brokenness and weeping, Jesus died in our place to make a way for us to be forgiven and free, and we can trust him and set our whole lives on that for forever. So Christians, I invite you to come and take communion. If you're not a follower of Jesus, again, just stay in your seat. There's prayers in the back of your bulletin that will guide and direct you in this space. Like engage it, though, with your heart, because what Jesus is saying is you just have two options. And he gives you an indication of what's happening down the road on option number two, which is not trusting in him. And you could just stop and evaluate, what's that look like for you? What, what would that mean? What, why would you not want to trust his sacrifice for your sin, even now in this moment? And if you're ready to trust him, any of our pastors would love to talk with you. But if you are following Jesus, I want to invite you to take communion. Again, so we're going to do this a little bit differently. If you'd rather use those like uh, little individual cups that are over here on the table, you can just walk around the outside and come and grab that. Gluten-free and allergy-free station over here on the right on the table will stay there. Adam will meet you over there, and he can serve that to you. You'll just pick up a little wafer, and you'll dip it in the cup. Up here in the front will be two stations. There'll be uh, someone holding a cup and someone holding the bread. And you'll take that piece of bread that's been kind of prepared for you already, and someone will say to you, this is the body of Jesus broken for you. And then you'll dip that piece of bread into the cup, and they'll say, this is his blood shed for your life. And you'll take and remember what he's done for you as the foundation for you to build your life upon. You can take it right here at the front, or you can go back to your seat either way. Let me pray for us, and then we'll take communion together. Jesus, thank you for who you are. Thanks for what you've done. Not just what you taught, but what you did. Thanks that you backed up your teaching in such a way that we can actually have hope, hope for life now and for forever. Thanks that you bore the weight of our sin on the cross in a way that actually makes us whole. Would you come down and fill the room with faith and stir in our hearts a longing to actually build our lives upon you with, with obedience as we first trust your obedience going all the way to the cross, which is our hope. We pray these things in Jesus' name. 
Amen.